0: So good to be. is uh, I I try to take a look at the world around me and specifically look at the things that I'm engaging with, um, movies, TV shows, music I'm listening to, um, books I'm reading, but also just, like, things I'm seeing on social media or things in the news. And I I, I try to take whatever I'm bringing in from different areas and try to find synthesis between it or try to find through lines that sort of meet up with uh, different topics. Um, And... The way that uh, what I'm going to talk about today came about is I was actually on um, I was on Instagram just like scrolling through maybe four or five weeks ago and I came across this picture that really just resonated with me and it sparked me going down this whole rabbit hole of history um, of San Diego and all these other things and um, and so what I came across was a picture of a cemetery in San Diego uh, a cemetery called uh, um, the El Campo Santo Cemetery, or the Sacred Ground, uh, Cemetery. And so this is one of the, this wasn't the exact picture, the, the picture will come up a little bit later, oh, I'll point it out when we get there, but this is one of the oldest cemeteries in the city of uh, San Diego, the second oldest in the city. Um, is anybody, I don't know if anyone's from San Diego or is familiar with this area. Oh, that's great, I get to get the new news. Um, so the cemetery was established back in 1849. It was a Roman Catholic cemetery. It had about 450, 475 people that were buried in it. Um, it was quite large at the time that it was created. And um, it was it was one of the largest cemeteries in San Diego. So this is a picture. It's a little hard to see because it's incredibly old. But uh, this is the cemetery when it was first started. There's a picture after this as well that um, is of the gate. So it was really just, you can tell what the landscape around this at the time. So this was... Sort of late eighteen hundreds, um, the, where the woman is standing is sort of where the gate is, where the gate to the cemetery kind of originally was. Um, and if you go forward from here, so this is what the cemetery looks like now. Um, the Historical Society of San Diego has gone through a lot of uh, effort to try to restore what the cemetery once looked like. Um, so the sort of picket fences around the graves, those. May have seen them in the previous image. Um, that's how the, sem- the cemetery was originally established or set up with these fences around the individual grave sites. Uh, we'll go a couple more. That's the next picture here. Um, and we can just stop here. That's okay. So, um, in the late 1800s, though, the city of San Diego was no longer starting to look like that just open field, like it was in the early. It was really growing up as a city. It was booming. There was a lot of people moving in there. And space started to become at a major premium. Um, and because of this, the city needed to start putting together more infrastructure. Um, they were putting down streetcars and roads and building more buildings. and They just had to get more serious about their infrastructure. And because of that, it was decided by the city that they actually needed some of the space for the cemetery to build a new line for the, the new streetcar. Uh, and so they went in and they, they sort of uh, uh, brought up some of the graves and moved them to some different places. They did that in a few places. But really more than over above, what they actually did is they went in, they sort of cut out a portion of the cemetery, and they put up a fence, and then they just removed the headstones and just paved over it without actually removing any of the. Um, so, if you were to go to San Diego and you were to drive down the road or walk down the sidewalk or walk past it, you wouldn't even realize it, but you were—you would actually be walking on top of where this sacred ground was, where the cemetery was, and where people still, to this day, are buried beneath it. Uh, there are 20 people that are buried beneath this road. So, in, in the name of progress, in the name of this innovation, we sort of just paved over what was there before, Kind of just moved on without really thinking about what once was,
1: and so of course over the
0: years the story kind of gets forgotten. This is we're talking over 120 years ago, 140 years ago now almost, and uh, most people who are going down the street are not even going to know that this is what this is. Uh, now the cemetery is—I don't think it's much larger than this building. Uh, it's sort of a—it was once several acres, and now it's much smaller and after it's been cut out and sort of used for other means. Um, and so most people who were you know, on their way to Starbucks or to work or whatever would just drive past it and just think it's a old, of old cemetery in the city and not realize uh, what they were driving on. There were even repeated petitions to the city throughout the uh, 1900s to try to do something about this, to try to uh, move these people or to, to put up plaques or things like that. But the city uh, over and above would just tend to um, deny them or shoot them down. Uh, it was as if they just didn't really want to think about or want to deal with this thing that they had sort of just kind of put away. Um, and then in 1942, the city did make the decision to repave over the road. They didn't do anything about what was beneath the road, but they repaved over it. And so now that's actually one of the, a major road in San Diego. I think it's called San Diego Avenue, uh, and there are still a ton of people using it. So because of this, as you might be able to imagine, people who like Ghost stories love this. Uh, people like they're you know I'm sure if you go down on one of the go down to San Diego and go on some sort of like haunted San Diego tour or something where they go out at late at night and show you all the spots I'm sure this is one of the places they're going to go right because the disturbance of this sacred ground is uh, one of those places where we where the city sees a lot of ghost stories throughout the years. In fact, one of the stories is that if you were to leave your car parked there on the street, even though nobody's around at the time, apparently car alarms go off just randomly. And that's, people will say, right, that's because of the disturbance of the spirits of the people who are living So, yeah, that's a little of what we're talking about today, right? Ghosts, hauntings, repression, things like that. You've heard of Christmas in July, maybe this is like Halloween in June. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it, I, I saw this picture, I, I was starting to read about this cemetery, and it just really started to, just really intrigue me, I found it to be a, a fascinating piece of history, and um, what it made me immediately think about is uh, the work of someone who maybe, I'm sure it probably has come up here a few times, uh, Peter Rollins, if you guys heard of him, does Ryan talk about I'm sure you've talks about him, yeah, uh, a friend of Ryan and mine, uh, in fact, Ryan and I met uh, and became friends through a Peter Allen's event, so uh, he's a connection between the two of us. Um, but Pete, throughout his writings, talks about this idea of a haunting, um, talks about the idea of sort of ghosts and things like that. Um, one of the, the things that he's sort as saying is we are all haunted houses full of ghosts. The ghosts of those that we've loved, that we've lost, that we've hurt, and ghosts of those that we've But what specifically sparked me was a a book that I had been reading a few months ago called It's Spooks, which is a book of, um, it's kind of an interesting art book. So the beginning of the book is a paper written by a theologian named John Caputo, and then the rest of the book are all these artists and writers and poets who have responded to this uh, paper of his through different photography or pieces of art or short articles or essays and things like that. Um, And Pete has a contribution to this book um, where he talks about the idea of sort of specters and and hauntings and things like that. So, um, to read a little bit from that, let's imagine a situation in which a family have lost their son and brother. Let's also imagine that the family has attempted to bury the memory of this trauma, sort of as deeply, And each Sunday, they all get together for dinner, and they talk about their week, But no one ever mentions the one who's missing from the gathering. While those gathered around the table might be thinking about the family member they lost, it's also very possible that no one is.
1: In other words, they're not merely
0: avoiding talking about the loss, they're actually avoiding thinking about it. Yet, because the loss isn't being brought to the surface... That doesn't mean that it isn't itself present. In fact, it's precisely because the loss is not being talked about that it is present. This makes that memory that loss present in a different way, in a way that he called a spectral way. He talks about this idea of ghosts or specters from different perspectives. Uh, ghosts within political structures that we have of things that we push down and repressed, and we don't want to think about throughout history. Goes within social structures, goes within relationships of with people that we've known in the past, things repressed, pushed down, paved over, and yet still come through and can haunt us in different ways. And today I want to think about this idea from just a slightly different perspective, and that would be that of our own personal narratives and the ways in which we grow and change over the years. As Pete says about these, so in this process of these ghosts coming through, we glimpse how, under a different understanding of how haunting can work. By ignoring these specters, by ignoring these things, we turn them into poltergeists. We turn them into things that come and disturb us and haunt us. They knock things around in our lives. They come out and make our existence more painful than it needs to be otherwise. So this is something that I've come to believe happens as a byproduct of our own growth and our own personal expansion. So let me ask this of the room. How many people, if you think back over, let's say, the last five years of your life, how many would say that you've grown or changed in some positive way over the last five years? That your Maybe your understanding of God has grown, your understanding of what society can be, uh, maybe preconcep- or conceptions of the world... Maybe in, in some other way you've grown over the last five years. If not the last five years, then maybe we could possibly even say the last ten years you've shifted or changed or grown in some way. And in doing this, do you sometimes every once in a while just look back and think that the, the person, maybe look back up at the person you once were, or the things you once believed, or the perceptions you once had, and find it difficult to think about yourself in that way and the ways that you Maybe you find it difficult to believe that that's actually somebody that you once were, or those are things that you used to believe in.
1: Maybe there wasn't a time, maybe there was a time where you
0: weren't inclusive of LGBT relationships as you are are today. Uh, Maybe there's a time where you weren't sensitive to the rights of others, or to social issues, or issues of gender, or issues of race as maybe you are today. I know for me, it can sometimes be uncomfortable to look back. And to think about the person I was and the things I believed five or ten years ago, um, I had a conversation with my wife recently where she mentioned something in like a discussion that we had like five or six years ago when we first moved to California, and I just was like, I I never believed that. I don't know where that came from. It was a, a discussion about sort of like uh, gender roles and relationships. and I was like, No, I never would have believed that men have to be this way. But and yet, like she was like, No, but you. That was definitely something that we talked about shortly after we got married. Nothing I would believe in now. Very, very different from who I am uh, today. And for me, it can also be very difficult to look back at certain things that uh, I learned or embodied um, growing up in youth groups or in my more evangelical stages of faith. Um, I know sort of the purity culture, some of the seminars that I had to go to around like, the true love ways of that kind of stuff that I went to growing up. There are things that I learned or things that I was told back when I was 14 or 15 about how the way God works or the way that purity works and things like that, that I don't believe in now, but that continue to come up constantly throughout my life as I'm going through it. Those are things about Things so about God, things about heaven and hell. Maybe I think differently about things about prayer. And I think it's easy to look back at those things and uh, think about those memories of my life as wasted time or as regrettable in some way. I think it's easy to look back and say, "Oh, if only I just like figured it out ten years earlier and figured out this understanding of faith and of God and who I am and all these things, then like I could be in a totally different place today." I could so much, I could have done so much more, I could be, so much further along than I am today. But I think that's not exactly how, that's not really how life works. I'll give you just a a quick example of this. A few weeks ago, um, we, there was a loss in uh, the sort of progressive Christian circles of a writer named Rachel Howell Evans. He's just a, a really wonderful writer that I look up to. Uh, immensely, and um, she passed away rather suddenly, and um, at the church that I normally attend on Sundays, the person who got up to speak, or the person who got up to speak the next day at church, he he talked about her impact on his life, and he talked about hearing that she had passed away, and starting to pray, and then realizing that he was praying in ways and praying about things he didn't think he believed in anymore. He didn't think we're a part of his normal, like his typical everyday process of belief, and yet he was still praying. I thought that was an interesting thought. And then two weeks ago, I was in Detroit, and uh, my grandmother passed away. I was in Detroit visiting family and visiting with her, and she passed away when I was in town. And I was sitting there, and I started praying. And as I was praying, I was realizing that I was praying in ways but if you had asked me on any normal day, I would have said, yeah, I don't really think that. Maybe I don't, I don't really think that I do that. And yet I was sort of in this moment of crisis reverting to this place that I had once learned but maybe didn't really uh, agree with anymore. Cool. I don't know if that resonates with you but I think that there are these, these things where in times of crisis or times of... Or just random moments when we're not thinking can kind of come up. And another, another version of that for me is uh, maybe more light-hearted version uh, of that for me is uh, this idea of God as this like um, bringer of favors. So there are times where I'll be driving down the road, right, and then like a, a cop car will pull up behind me and I'll just start going, like, oh God, please don't let I hope I don't have a headlight up. Please, God, don't let him have seen that I rolled to that stop sign and I was speeding. You just get me out of this, or I'll go to church on Sunday, i probably Right? You start bartering. You start saying, like, you know, my boss calls me in for a meeting at work, and I'm like, oh, please don't let this be that day. If uh, so you just get me through this, I'll be, you know, like, and I'll start doing that. But that's not, I don't believe that that's who God is anymore. I i have moved past these ideas of belief, but maybe I just paved over them. Maybe I just, I, I have just tried to forget that I ever once, believe them in, this, in the first place. So I think these things come up to haunt me, because I refuse to acknowledge them. Because maybe I don't give them enough space. Uh, maybe the hubris of progress tends to be that I look back and I think, oh, I'm so much better than I was before, right? I'm better because I don't think these things. And so I just try to forget that I ever once did. I'm thinking about giving reverence to once was, about the gift we had before, it's easy to do that, right? It's easy to look back and just say, Oh, I'm so glad I'm not the person I was before, or just to forget that's where we were. And this reminds me of a story from the Gospels that I really like. There's this point in, in several of the Gospels where uh, Jesus is eating at a table and a woman comes in and anoints him with this very stuff. I'll read the version of this from, uh, from Matthew. It's Matthew 26. So now when Jesus now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive mainland. She poured it on his head as he refined it at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and then given to the but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has, done something, but she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment, this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, will also be told in memory, Really on this the story. Why this waste? I think that's so often a place that my head goes to. Uh, when I think about a lot of issues, uh, whether they're issues in the country, issues in politics, or issues within myself, or in my own past. When the disciples come, they have all these judgments of this event that just happened. They don't even realize the importance of it, right? Jesus refrains what just happened as something absolutely Necessary, not just beautiful. Beautiful, not just important, but necessary. So necessary that they don't even understand the importance of it. Because she is preparing Jesus for burial, a ritual that was important back to the, uh, in that time, and they don't even know what's coming. They don't just—they just don't get it, and they don't understand. And so, yeah, it can be easy to think about this time when you're not in a progressive space or when you're in the past as a waste. And yet, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those moments of our past. By pushing it down, it just means that we encounter them in ways that are less healthy and less productive, where we're constantly facing things and then having to refight them off because they're coming up. So this, I think, as opposed to a different idea of this, which would be stopping every once in a while, and slowing down, looking back over who we were, looking back over our own pasts and our own stories, and appreciating the gifts that we were given, the value that they have, or the value that they had at those points in our lives. The gifts of being able to come through processes of maybe toxic or, Uh, difficult belief systems to be in the space that we're in now. To be in a space that I'm in now, not as a feeling of wastefulness, but of reverence, of appreciation and joy in a journey of progress. Not so much that we were not there yet, but that we are there now. And in order to be there now, we once had to be not there yet. We had to come through Get to where we are today. So, in the early 1990s, the city of San Diego started to think about its graveyard, started to think about these people that were buried under the ground, and started to ask questions about what to do about it. How do we manage, how do we handle, how do we give respect and care to the people who once were and are now just under our feet and forgotten? It was obviously something that had haunted the city of San Diego over the century. It was about, about 100 years after this had happened. It was obviously something that was still a part of the memory. Because it was something that they decided and recognized that, that something had to be done to care for and remember these people. So a plaque was put up to remember the space. I think we have a picture two ahead uh, of the plaque. So, a plaque is put up to remember these people who were underneath the street. Uh, remembering more than 13 people, mostly children, who the buried beneath Linwood Street, graves were discovered with the use of ground penetrating radar. So, they went through in 1993 and they scanned the street and they found the people who were buried below.
1: And in addition to the
0: plaque, we'll go on to the next slide. Um, it's kind of hard to see, maybe easier to see on the, the TV screen. But it's a round, there's a little round coin. It's not much bigger than, it's probably about the size of a silver dollar that just says gravesite. And after they went through them, they scanned the street, and then they put these markers in the ground, mm-hmm. in the pavement where these people were buried. Nothing huge, right, not a, not a monument, not tearing up the road, nothing that caused a major change to infrastructure, but just a small marker. So small that you can probably walk past it, and a lot of people I'm sure do every day and maybe don't even know. But if you happen to look down at the right moment and happen to be on that space, you might see this marker and just stop and think, oh, this is what was here for. And give a little bit of reference, a little bit of memory, to the time and the place that once was. I think all of us are like this. I think we're all sort of grave sites inside of ourselves. We have all these people that we once were, all these thoughts that we once had, all these memories from throughout our lives, and we have them all deep and buried inside of ourselves. Ideologies, truths, things we've done to people, ways in which we've hurt people, ways in which we've been hurt, are all inside ourselves. But I think that um, one of the other things that that Pete says in this article is that everyone wants to create their own form of Eden. A place where the ghosts don't exist, and where the darkness is disappearing. But this is nothing but a dangerous and destructive fantasy. Mm It leads to unhealthy, destructive systems. The flip side of this is creating a space like a cemetery where you can walk through, where you can remember. Some days you can just walk past. You can appreciate, or you can ignore and not even notice because you're on your way somewhere that's much more important. But a place where you can remember, where you can hold and cherish the memories. and use them as markers of ways in which to move forward from where you are today. Because certainly, if who you are today is different than who you were five years ago. That's a progress that will continue to happen for the rest of your life. If I ask that question in five years from now, how will you answer Who you are then will be very different from who you are today, in a different political climate, in a different world, different beliefs, and what will happen? The important process is being able to place these markers give reverence for people like today.